Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keyes. And we're coming to you this week with a lovely analysis of this week's episode, Sticks and Stones from the second season. Bridget, would you like to give us a plot summary? A brief one, I should has, I should rush to say, <laughs> since I was given that admonition last week. I would love to give a plot summary of what is an absolutely delightful and one of my favorite episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Um, now that I've said that, I'm like, oh, God, where do I even start? Okay, you guys, we're in Cabot Cove. There's some poison pen letters floating around town, people accusing each other of awful things. Everybody's getting angry. Meanwhile, there's a deal for the old Coast Guard property to be developed into a condo complex. It's going to make a lot of people really rich. And ultimately, it turns out the poison pen letters have to do with the fact that the only reason that property is available is because someone burned the lighthouse to the ground intentionally to make money on the land sale. And that person turns out to be none other than our beloved Harry, a.k.a. Gomez, who's now taken over as sheriff. It is a shocking ending. It is a shocking and, for Jessica, devastating ending, which we'll get to that a little later. Because it does seem like this is one of those ones that packs an emotional punch for her as a character, oh, obviously. She does, the, she does that confrontation so beautifully as an actor. Yep. So we'll get to that. Um, okay. But, but I do want to start maybe with this Cabot Cove, because I personally love the Cabot Cove episodes. I think they're often my favorite episodes, because they so effortlessly and so convincingly capture the essence of small-town life. And as a small-town boy myself, I find that very comforting. Like, I can imagine, I don't know if this is true, but I can imagine when the show first came out that these were the episodes that reminded people of why they love this show, just because they're so comforting. Like, they're so... They're the epitome of the com- the cozy mystery. Like, and In fact, I- TJ, I can support that with scientific evidence because I have interviewed numerous fans of the show and they all say unequivocally the Cabot Cove episodes are their favorite. Yep. So there you have it. There is strong evidence to, to back up what I'm saying. And I think the reason for that is because they do such a good job of capturing not just the sort of beautiful main coastal scenery although as is usually the case with these episodes we get lots of lovely shots of the coastline oh we do it's great it's mendocino but it's cosplaying as maine as one of my research subjects said that's a very apt way of putting it yeah Um, but it's also true that you know in this episode in particular we just get such a lovely cross-section of the denizens of cabot cove as you know we see them arguing with each other about one thing or another, people fishing. Like, it's just such a lovely pan, you know, panorama, if you will, of... You know, I think you're right, because we critiqued last week's episode for feeling really insular, partly because of its setting in a prison, but also it just kind of felt low budget, mm-hmm. because we didn't get lots of exterior shots, we didn't get a lot of extras, and this feels very expansive, it feels like Cabot Cove is a real village. It's full of people. It's full of life. It feels expensively made, even though it's not, because it just seems bursting with life and activity. And that makes it seem more true, like it actually exists, rather than being a fictional story about a fictional place. I love that idea. I really do. I think that is a very apt way of putting it. And 
it's the kind of, you know, because one of the nice things about television is that it does sort of allow you to spend time with characters that you like or people that you feel like you can know. And that's part of the advantage of these Cabot Cove episodes because we feel like we're part of Cabot Cove. Like we feel like we're inhabitants, not just spectators, not just voyeurs who are helicoptering in to Seattle or what, wherever Jessica happens to be traveling. But this feels like a real lived in place, which I think is one of those things that is very traditional within television. Yeah, we talk about that in TV studies, that unlike a film where you go to the theater and you enter that world for two hours, uh, TV is domestic, right? Your TV set is in your house, and so and you visit the characters week after week. So it feels like they're part of your life because they're literally in your home. And I think, you know, your point that we are part of Kevick Cove is really echoed in the, the subplot that I didn't mention in my summary because you told me I had to be really, really brief. Um, As she also told me, I should point out. <laughs> Which is that um, a travel writer comes to Cabot Cove and somehow gets to stay with millionaire, super famous author Jessica Fletcher. Sounds like a dream mm-hmm. assignment. Um, and his plan is to write a story about how charming Cabot Cove is. And he says, I'm going to put Cabot Cove on the map. To which Jessica responds, it's already there. Um, but the idea is, you know, he wants the rest of the world to see Cabot Cove and we are such a part of Cabot Cove that we feel the same way Jessica does about this. This is horrifying. We don't want you to write some story that's going to bring in tons of tourists and change the town. Right, which of course parallels very deeply the land deal that's, you know, taking shape in the background where they're going to, you know, erect these high-rise condominiums. Although I'm also wondering who's going to live in these condominiums. Like that's what the question I was wondering. Like are people flocking to coastal Maine in the 80s to like live in high-rise condominiums? But I don't get too far afield, but maybe you can answer this. But I don't. I that's a good question. I mean, certainly today, sure, we can totally imagine like baby boomers buying retirement condos in Maine, or people snatching them up as investment properties for Airbnb. But what was going on in 1986? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. It was like, so was it like Boston expats? I was like, what? Who exactly is like fleeing? Boston retirees? Maybe I guess. I mean, maybe that's they're, they're cornering the market. You know, Japanese business people. It is the 80s. That so was it, big in the 80s. It was, at least in television. Yeah. The Kushners. But, yes, right. But anyway, point being, like, the, there's an interesting parallel between that storyline with the, you know, the writer trying to boost Cabot Cove's public profile and also the high rise, which would, of course, dis- utterly disfigure the beautiful Cabot Cove coastline. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting, you know, conjunction of those two storylines, both of which, you know, highlight that part of what makes Cabot Cove so appealing both for the characters and for us as viewers is its insularity like its isolation yeah. and sort of pristineness as a time capsule of like small town America like and uh, the stuff that would change that would be of course the travel writing and also the high rise which are both you know much more contemporary things that would bring Cabot Cove into the present in a way that neither the characters nor us as viewers would like because of course it's a fantasy and 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 fantasy small town narratives anything that would like economically benefit the town is ruinous to its character right never mind the fact that like eventually this town will die from lack of resources if they don't have some tourists pretty soon right right but you know that's what makes tv fantasy right yeah because we can ignore the actual economic realities of tourism and small town life so what i love about this episode too is in keeping with this idea of cabot cove feeling real um you know, we we have 
We learn in this episode that Amos is retiring. So the first thing we see is him and Harry in matching uniforms. And it's Amos's last day. And he's training Harry to do the job. Um, and so there's a sense that, like, Amos is a real person. We don't just drop in on Cabot Cove and see him being sheriff, you know, every 10 episodes. It's like, no, he's a real person with a life. And now he's retired. And we haven't seen the sheriff election go on. But apparently Harry ran and won. And, you know, so there's, like, this whole, like, sort of backstory to all of this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, of course, we all talk about how much we love seeing Jessica and Seth together, and we get so much of that in this, but mm-hmm. we also get her with Amos and Seth, and that's just such a delightful little trio. Right. And I actually find Amos less intolerable than normal, because like he's a little more restrained, precisely because he's not in his official capacity as the sheriff. Like He's just helping Jessica investigate basically as a private citizen at this point. And so he doesn't have that same impulse to always rush to judgment. Like he's a little more laid back, which I think is a lovely grace note to Tom Bosley's performance. You didn't say that in the last episode. I I just realized I did. did. You did. What was the grace note in the last episode? But I snuck it in there quickly enough that you didn't notice it. Damn. But, but I think also um, it's that Amos is contrasted with Harry and Harry is mm-hmm. so profoundly terrible at the job and so in over his head that by comparison, yep. it makes Amos look like a really good police officer, which frankly, we kind of need because believing that this guy is running this county when he's so awful at his job, you know, is just not going to last. But by comparison to Harry, it's like, oh, actually, Amos was good at his job. Like, Harry really sucks. Yeah, and I think part of the reason we get that perception is because of all our other experiences with Harry, where he has that sort of nervous energy and, you know, general sleaziness. Like, it's clear that Harry's not a terribly, like, ethical person, as we've seen at numerous points at this end. So it's not particularly surprising that at some point he would end up being a murderer. Well, so that's the other thing that I like about this, is that this episode kind of assumes that you've seen the other Cabot Cove episodes, and like I said, like, it's building on this idea that these people's lives go on. Like, it's, it's it's trusting us to remember that Harry was involved in a land deal before and did totally unethical things. And that was in Joshua Peabody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and so, like, the fact that Harry ultimately is our murderer and it ultimately it was because of a real estate deal and his lack of ethics when it comes to making money, like, it's kind of trading on us remembering that. Which is unusual right. for episodic TV in the 80s, but it, again, it makes Cabot Cove feel like real people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a couple of just personal notes about this episode is that, one, it's been in my parents' rotation, oddly. I think just because it shows up on Hallmark and stuff a lot more rec- a lot more frequently than some of the other episodes, so it's one I'm more intimately familiar with. It's one my parents always watch. But even so, like, every time I watch it, including this time, I'm always... I feel with Jessica because I'm not used to seeing, like, a recurring character be a murderer. Yeah. Like, I'm just not used to that. Like, it, it still feels jarring to me when it's, re- like, when it's revealed that that's who was responsible for not one, but two deaths, both of which were particularly not pleasant. Like, in one case, like, she's electrocuted. And then, you know, it's just like, ugh. And then hanged in the other case. And it's just like, Wow. This is quite shocking to see Harry. I mean, also the fact that, you know, it's John Aston slash Gomez, you know, who has a sort of charm to him, even though he can be sleazy, makes it all that much more shocking for obviously for Jessica, but also for us in the audience. So just to explain, um, Harry has killed this woman named Beverly 
because Beverly inherited the land, the old Coast Guard property. They call it Coast Guard property, but it's privately held. They were just leasing it to the Coast Guard. And when the lighthouse burned down, it reverted back to Beverly. And Harry kills her because... She was blackmailing him. Because she had split part of the profits with him. But then, because he was the one who burned down the lighthouse, she was basically then blackmailing him to get back the money she had already paid him to do it. And Beverly had told her father's secretary, if anything happened to her, um, it probably had to do with the lighthouse being burned down. Right. And so once, and so that woman sends a letter to Amos, who she thinks is the sheriff, uh, saying, you know, this was arson. And that starts the poison pen process because, of course, now Harry's at the sheriff's office. He sees the letter. So he starts flooding the town with these letters to cover up what the true letter is what the true story is. Um, and Harry ultimately has to kill that woman too because she knows her letter was real. Yep. And that she's the one who sent her letter. And he hangs her. Which is horrifying. Yeah. You think it's a really, a particularly gruesome way of killing someone? Yeah, I mean, yes. Hanging is often a very horrible way to go. Even if it's, you know, even if it breaks your neck, still it's not exactly... The most peaceful way to go. At least with Beverly's mm-hmm. death, it was electrocution, which is relatively quick. But, you know, her death was so calculated. Like, Harry had set up this whole thing with her TV set, and he drilled a hole in the floor so he could spy on her getting in the bathtub, and he cut the power and turned the power back on at just the right moment. So, I mean, it's a really carefully plotted murder, although Jessica, like, it's like, you left all this evidence behind. Like, you suck as sheriff and you suck as a murderer. <laughs> you left wood shavings on the floor. Like, Yeah, dumbass. <laughs> but I just, um, it's interesting to me that we're not supposed to see Harry as competent as sheriff or as a murderer. But he obviously thought this through a lot. It was very calculated. He'd been planning it. Um which is extra evil, I think, in my mind. Like someone murdering in the heat of the moment, you know? Right. That's very different than someone sitting down and plotting out how they're going to take someone's life. Sure. And I mean, the fact that Harry is so often so avuncular, like for all of his sleaziness, yes. he is very like jolly and, and always smiling in the way that we expect of John Aston, just because he just has that smiling kind of bouncy energy. But then to conceal such a ruthless and calculated murderer, like it's just, it's part of what makes it so shocking, you know? Yeah. And, and then of all things, he pulls a gun on Jessica Fletcher, the woman he has known yeah. for years when she confronts him with the murder. Like it's just. I mean, that confrontation scene is so good. She's crying. I mean, she is fighting back tears when she says, I didn't want it to be you. I wanted to be wrong, you know? And he has this glorious, angry monologue about all the injustices he's experienced, and then he pulls the gun on her. I mean, can you imagine pulling a gun on someone who's been your lifelong friend? Let alone Jessica Fletcher. I mean, it's not just anybody. It's Jessica Fletcher. J.B. Fletcher. Like, I just, in someone who he has encountered, and we've seen him encountering several times, including when he took her to that lodge up the, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe place a couple weeks ago. It's, in a, you know, especially in a small town like Cabot Cove, where, and this is one of those moments where, like, I think knowing what a small town is like, you know, there are people, as you say, that you've known your entire life, that you've shared so much of your of your life with, to have that all ripped away in a moment when they reveal who they truly are and what they're truly capable of, is one of those moments where I think Murder, really gets to an emotional truth that is really profound. Like, and I think that 
because the performances from both Aston and Lansbury are just so good in this scene, it really helps it to land. And it's revealing that, you know, Jay, Jessica says, I didn't, I wanted so badly to be wrong. I mean, and it's, I, it's one of those moments where I think we really get a sense of, you know, how much of an emotional weight it must be on Jessica to be mm-hmm. so responsible, it's like, like to always have to be the one to bring this stuff to light. It's evocative of that, of the episode last season where she confronted the, ra- like the murderers or the rapists, like, uh, whichever one you know the one at the the corral or whatever it's the one at the ranch that concludes the season one finale yes funeral at 50 mile yes exactly it's where there's it's one of those moments where you really get a sense of you know the weight of duty that Mm -hmm. so sometimes feels like sometimes that's not always evident but this is one of those times where it really becomes most clear but this you know these kind of things take an emotional toll on her to have to admit it especially when it's someone she knows so well uh, that's interesting to me because I just finished rereading Agatha Christie's Nemesis, where the the repeated line is like, um, let justice roll down like waters, you know, my name is Nemesis. And it's, I feel like Jessica feels that same sense of duty, right, and burden mm-hmm. that Miss Marple feels in that book of like, I am, I am responsible for bringing the truth to light, no matter how awful that truth is. Um, and it's fitting that I'm referencing Christie here, because obviously the whole poison pen letters circulating around town causing issue among the villagers is a nod to Agatha Christie's A Moving Finger, a different Marple novel. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that I was thinking. And having just read The Moving Finger a few months ago, it was as soon as the poison pen and the letters flooding the town, I was like, okay, this has to be an homage to Christie. But I also, I mean, just to elaborate on what you were just saying, like, you know, I think that one of the things that helps Murder, She Wrote, along with Christie, who are sort of like the the two most popular mystery fictions i think in circulation and certainly have the greatest longevity and i think that part of what helps to explain that is because jb like miss marple and even like poirot you know are not completely like they're not emotional automatons like they're deeply emotional people but they also they understand the price that justice exacts not only on Mm -hmm. the people who are being you know who do the murder but also on the person who uncovers it like i think that that's part of the reason that they are so enduringly popular is because of episodes like this that bring out that sort of emotional richness i like that i and i think that um further adds to why these episodes are so much more popular than episodes where she jets in and out of places right because there's a depth to Mm -hmm. her relationship to the characters that makes the reveal so much more poignant but, you know, Teach, we're talking about mm-hmm. how just sort of horrifying the the conclusion is, the climax and the discovery of the murderer and just how tolling it is on Jessica. But this is actually quite a light episode. It's full of comedy and it's it's mostly shot mm-hmm. in the daytime. It's bright. It's sunny. It's um it's a it's a very light episode in many ways. Yeah, I mean, we have those moments where, like, Seth expresses his <laughs> frustration with Amos, like, and there's, you know, the little snapshots and vignettes of the various denizens of Cabot Cove going about their business and squabbling and such. So, yeah. Let's talk about some of those, though, can we? Like, so the, to the travel writer, I'm just going to call him Grady Light because he looks a lot like Michael Horton, and I think his function in the episode is much like Grady's um, to JB's. So I just called him Grady Light, but his character's name is Michael, whatever. Um, like, the first thing he does is, like, meet Seth, and he's like, oh, that's a real crusty New Englander, which I had never – I remember as a kid, like, I had never heard crusty to describing anything other than bread. 
until I saw this episode. And then I just assumed like, oh, that's how people in New England are. They're crusty. Um, which I guess is fair. Yeah, they are. Sorry, New Englanders. But then there's another great moment where a lady comes up to Je- Jessica's like walking Grady light along the Mendocino slash Maine coastline and showing him it's just stunningly beautiful. Like the location mm-hmm. scout, A plus, man. Um, and a woman just like out of nowhere comes up and wallops Jessica with her purse. I mean, just smashes her. I know that was a beautiful moment. <laughs> and she's like, stay away from my husband. <laughs> It's so good because, like, it's Jessica Fletcher and you just hit her with your handbag and stay away from my husband. Like, Jessica would ever have a dalliance with some, like, rando small town woman's dumb husband. I mean, oh, it's just glorious. Mm-hmm. It's gl- And it, it interrupts the scene in a way that's so unexpected. It's just like, what the hell just happened? Yep, exactly. And there's the, you know, the... the- Neighbors who start squabbling um, as Jessica and the and Grady Light walk past, like just well, I'm gonna call the sheriff, which of course all builds to why Harry feels so overwhelmed because he's getting like swamped with the crazy the the uh, he's getting swamped with the madcap and often inane concerns of the various people who are in his jurisdiction and realizing yeah. just how much Amos has had to put Oh, there's just so, so good. I mean, there's another scene on the dock where two people who are kind of important to the murder plot, but not really important to this podcast episode, um, are fighting and eventually one of them chucks the other into the ocean. Like, it's just so funny. There's just lots of little comedic notes. And right. then there's, um, at one point, Jessica sends Grady Light to infiltrate the Condo 3 and keep them busy while she goes to explore the victim's house. And that's ultimately when she figures out the connection to the condos and Harry and the real estate deal. Um, and while he's talking, you know, she's she tells him, like, you have to keep them at this bar. So this poor guy is just trying so hard not to get drunk uh, with these people. And the wo- there's a woman among the condo three, and she obviously is very attracted to him. And she's just like getting drunk and playing with his hair and just she's so into him and he's faking being drunk he tells jessica on the phone um because he ate a pound of butter and i remember teach as a kid learning that too like oh you can avoid getting drunk if you eat butter while you're drinking which i'm pretty sure would not actually work it doesn't work (laughs) there's no way to avoid getting drunk really like that's just you know but also, if you drink a fifth of scotch and eat a pound of butter, like, you'll probably die. I mean, you'll be violently If you do that sick. at the yeah. same time. It sounds yeah. horrible. <laughs> but it's funny, right? Like, it's just, it's the humor of, like, this poor guy that, Je- and at one point, Jessica even goes back to her house with Seth and Amos, and she's, like, totally forgotten about him. She's like, oh, gosh. And this poor guy is, like, down in scotch trying to stay alive. And also, I mean, just as one brief aside, this episode doesn't have a lot of, like, big name guest stars, but it does have Joseph Capanella. Um, who plays one of the Condo Three, famous for being in, in many things, but I know him best as like Al from the Golden Girls, and also for being in Mama's Family, where he plays Thelma's teacher slash uh, boyfriend. So, just remind everyone who Al is in the Golden Girls. He is one of the cops that comes to uh, investigate the next door neighbors who are jewel thieves, and his younger partner is George Clooney. So George Clooney, I know. So you know, it's it's lovely to see him. He's you know he showed up so often in eighties TV. It's just always fun to see him. With a mustache. But he's no a bad guy yes, in this. he is a bad guy. Yeah. We we have we also have the guy who plays Bentley in The Jeffersons. We do. 
And he plays an, another sort of humorous thing that goes nowhere is that he's pretending to be German and has a fake accent. Right. Um, and then it, he like slips up and forgets his accent at one point. Right. And he's boarding. And Jessica catches him. And he's boarding with the secretary who ends up hanged. Yes. So he is potentially a suspect for a hot minute. Right. So, of course, there's also the investigation. We haven't talked yet about too much about, like, what leads Jessica to identify Harry as the murderer. And it's actually, it's one of those, he slips up and says something that he couldn't have known unless he were the murderer. Because the reason that they think that Beverly was electrocuted was because of the frayed wire. But it's revealed by one of the people at the dock that he had actually fixed that wire the previous week. So Harry could not have done, like, couldn't have been the explanation. Because Harry says to Amos, oh, yeah, I noticed that a month ago. But he couldn't have noticed the frayed wire if it had already been repaired. So that was the the slip up that revealed his knowledge that ultimately led to his, Jessica realizing he was the murderer. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense because the TV was only fixed last week, so a month ago the wire could have been frayed. Yeah, I know, but I'm just that that's what the episode gives us. So I'm not really sure what to do with that. I think he said that he he when he fixed the TV, it was something else he was fixing. There wasn't a frayed wire. Okay. Well, otherwise, it's not actually a reveal, right? Like, but that's isn't that, that's what Jessica says gave him away, though, right? Well, that doesn't totally give him away, is my point. Because oh, I know. So if it got fixed, it got fixed, right? So are you are you pinpointing the the flaw in the episode or and what I'm saying? I'm not sure what's going on here. I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I don't know either. But there was also the the postmark situation too, right? I think, because for me, this wasn't an episode where Jessica catches someone in the act of saying something, which is really common in Murder, She Wrote. It was more like all of the evidence starts leading in a particular direction. Because, like, uh, Grady lights on the phone with her, and he tells her that there was a finder's fee for the broker of the property. And we know that Harry is a real estate agent. I guess we don't yet have Eve. Right. Um, so Harry's a real estate agent, and so he would have gotten that finder's fee. Ding, that's point number one. And we actually see Jessica sort of pause on the phone with him. Like, that clicks for her. And then, um, what was the other thing? Oh, that Amos's letter. Um, was postmarked from where the secretary was going for her doctor's appointment. Which means that it was not sent by the same person who sent all the other letters. And then Harry throws all the envelopes away. Uh, and we think it's because he's right. just a dumbass and doesn't know how to be a sheriff. Which, of course, why would he? Did he go to sheriff school? Like, has he had any training in law enforcement? He's a real estate agent, right? Like, how and, – and also, I just have questions about this because Amos is like, I'm going to retire. Right. So I assume there was an election and Harry won the election. But, like, who would vote for Harry, frankly? Maybe he ran unopposed. And then, Am and then he tells Amos, like, I don't want this job. This job sucks. It's so hard. And Amos is like, I guess I'll do it again. And it's like, can you just do that? Can you just, like, unretire and take your job back? Like, you don't have to have another election or something? Like – the mayor doesn't have to appoint someone, like, temporarily. The whole thing is just really bizarre to me. Like, I just don't understand how Cabot Cove runs itself. Yeah, there, there are many questions about the infrastructure of Cabot Cove that remain, <laughs> the infrastructure like, of Cabot Cove. That remain, yeah. like, the electoral <laughs> politics of Cabot Cove clearly have much to, leave much to be desired if this is how things are going. Oh, you know what? We haven't met the mayor yet, have we? In, I don't think so. In our little universe, so... Yeah, Cabot Cove is just, it's a... But one more thing I did want to mention as we close in on the, the finale is that we have one of the very few times, we get one of the very few times in Murder, She Wrote where someone refers to Jessica as Jesse. And it's the guy at the dock who refers, which of course we only heard that from Ethan 
in the first season. Like, we very rarely hear anybody oh, call yeah. her Jessie. And it's just, I don't know, it's one of those interesting little moments yes. where we get a sense that, you know, what people actually call her in her everyday life. But, it, it, you like, know, it, okay, so in season one, we're supposed to believe that she and Ethan are, like, best friends. Um, which, you know, I just don't believe because I'm a Seth girl all the way. Uh but if that's true, then that is a nickname that people who are close to her in her life call her. But now Ethan's gone and, like, nobody ever talks about him again. And we have Seth, who only ever calls her Jessica. Right. And then there's, like, this rando guy on the dock that we've never met before who calls her Jessie. So it makes it – to me, it doesn't feel like a glimpse into, like, how people refer to her in her real life. It's like, whoa, who are you to be so overly familiar with Mrs. J.B. Fletcher, famous author – calling her jesse this is like deeply offensive to me i can tell bridget is like livid her face is turning red with fury right now (laughs) at this at this presumptuous cabot cove resident but i guess it is a reminder that like even though in the in the other episodes where we see her jet setting around you know she's famous and people recognize her in hotels and airports um but in cabot cove she's just like yeah a townie yeah exactly she goes to get her toaster repaired. You know, she's just a townie, which is such a cute thing. Cause, like nobody does that anymore because toasters cost like ten dollars. Yeah, exactly. It's just cheaper to throw them away, right? This is the problem with society today. Nobody fixes toasters. Among that is one of the cardinal <laughs> sins of twenty first century society, right there. That is true. The the disposability culture that we live in. It. I I would support that, but you know, it is a cute grace note. Look, I can do it too, of the episode because in the first scene that we see with Jessica, um, it's her on the phone talking and it's the one that that meme comes from where it's like, hello, Mm -hmm. who's dead? And then in the background, Seth is trying to fix the toaster and Seth obviously has no idea what he's doing. He's a doctor. And so she like cutely lets him attempt to fix the toaster and then uh, takes it to the repair person and is like, yeah, Seth tried to fix this. You better – now it needs more fixing. Yep. Which no, is just like really – it's a cute bit about their relationship, I think. Yeah. Imagine that. I, 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 in case you haven't noticed, Bridget and I have a very Seth and Jessica kind of relationship. Would you try to fix my toaster if it broke? No, but you would totally try to yeah, fix mine. I would. You I totally would. would. You would. Not only would you try to, you would insist upon it. You would, like, literally take the toaster out of my house while I was away. Try to Why would it. I steal your toaster? Because it's you. Because you are a micromanager. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know, sometimes you take a person's toaster to fix it, to be helpful to them, and they call you a micromanager. They're just, like, totally unappreciative. (laughs) I didn't mean that as a pejorative. I think think it's it's really cute that after all of this nonsense that he's lived through, Grady Light is like, you know what? Cabot Cove is kind of great. I don't want to spoil it. So he tears up his notes, and the final, the freeze frame is Jessica and Seth waving goodbye to him. Um, But, like... Yep. Like, obviously, we're supposed to feel that way about Cabot Cove, but, like, what, sir, in your two days in this town led you to believe that when you have seen two people get violently murdered and a town explode with rumors and gossip about each other? What made you decide this place was so great it needed to be protected? Not to mention, like, how are you going to get paid? Right. Like, you're, you're supposed to be working on this piece. Like, what's what's going to happen after this piece? Do you think that, that, that he had to, to front writing? the money to get to Cabot Cove himself, and now he's not going to get reimbursed? Or do you think that they paid for him to get to Cabot Cove? Probably. 
Well, maybe the latter. If, if he's if he's prestigious enough that he's getting lined up with well, what cheapskate magazine wouldn't get him a hotel room? Like, why is is Jessica getting paid for hosting this clown? I mean, she's a famous author, That's and they're like, question. can you there just let this guy bunk at your house and make him scrambled eggs in the morning? No, I can't. I have books to write. I have, and I have murders yeah. to investigate, heartbreaks yeah. to endure. God, that, you know what he's going to do, though? He's not going to write the Cabot Cove piece. He's going to write this um, memoir about the time he got to hang out with J.B. Fletcher and solve a murder with her. Yep, like <laughs> yeah, like Tuesdays with Jessica. It's going to go viral, and he's going to make a mint on it. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we all love to be that guy once? <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk fashion, Teach. At one point, I mean, okay. she's wearing her, like, homey, you know, JB and Cabot Cove s- shirts with sweaters over them most of the episode, and that's fine. But there is a scene where she's wearing this weird, thick, white wool cardigan with, like, whales embroidered on it. <laughs> with whales? That was literally what stood out to me. I was like, we have so to talk bad. about the whales. <laughs> but it's so of a piece though i mean if you're in maine why wouldn't you have so a cardigan ugly. with whales on it like that's that's seem- <laughs> i don't know i kind of liked it did you i thought it was very charming and very of a piece with the yeah. cove environment yeah i just think it's it's funny too because we've talked about how um angela lansbury fought to have jessica's wardrobe updated and more sophisticated in season two now that she's a mm-hmm. famous author and like what does she do? She busts out her whale cardigan. <laughs> yep. She's home. Like, that's her comfort outfit. Like, come on now. If you lived in Maine, would you not have a whale? I would totally have a whale cardigan. Would you? Should I look for one on Etsy to send you for Christmas or something? I mean, because I live on the shore of Maryland, and I actually have a – my armchair that I use every day has, like, seabird – like, water birds all over it. Like, it's – that's the, the – the upholstery is, like, water birds. It's awful and I love it. I would not. I would never give it away. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of what kind of person I am. So I would definitely be the kind of person who would wear, wear a whale cardigan. Okay. I would never wear a whale cardigan. But if you want to, I support that. Okay. What's next week? Um, I don't know. <laughs> but we have two, I think, back-to-back episodes now that are just phenomenal. Season two is crushing it. Yep. So... That's probably going to do it for this week. Sounds good to me. Okay. Well, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys, And I am TJ West. And we'll see you next time. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 